Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 2, Friedrich Krupp. Last time, we saw the Krupp family line go from simple merchant status, with nerve and some luck, to become, over time, established patricians in the town of Essen, Germany. But Friedrich Krupp, the great-grandson of Art's great-grandson, would bring the family and its fortunes to a point so low that Art, the first known Krupp, must have been spinning in his grave. Friedrich, the family's new paterfamilias, was born 200 years to the day that Art Krupp walked into Essen's walled city. And being born a patrician, Friedrich dreamed big, after all. It was expected of him. But his dreams would have shocked even his successful grandmother, Helen. He was determined to become the Ruhr's first real industrialist. And his first step would be as the manager of the Gute Hoffnungschut, which he took over in 1807. Up until now, the factory had been profitable, under his grandmother's tight control, producing the necessities of life, kitchenware, stoves, weights, and cannonballs for Prussia. The last item should not be made too much of, but again, it was a sign of the times. Napoleon's words and troops were rattling Europe, and Prussia, which had taken control of Essen in 1802, was obviously protective of this source of dependable cannon shot. Now, anyone else may have seen a potential European war as an opportunity, but war is fickle, and Helen Krupp wasn't. She held back, and time vindicated her. Prussia, in 1805, instead of jumping into the madness, shed their Russian and Austrian allies, traded some land with the French leader, and came to terms. Essen wasn't a part of this trade, but still, that didn't stop the Marshal of France, Joachim Mira, from taking Essen soon after the peace terms were concluded. But the Prussians, although content with their settlement, were not so intimidated as to suffer their pride thus impugned, gathered their forces, jumped over Essen's wall one night, and kicked out the French troops. Napoleon, being more experienced at this sort of thing, bided his time and got Essen back in the Peace of Tilsit, three years later. But all that's for the future. Friedrich got off to a running start once his grandmother turned him loose. First off, he canceled the small time, as he saw it, production of traditional items and retooled the entire factory to produce items which called for precision and exacting details, such as pistons, cylinders, and engine parts. Then, he guaranteed failure by firing the foreman. Friedrich knew that this man did not have the experience to handle the products he envisioned for his new business. But neither did the remaining workers, nor even himself. He then celebrated his road to riches by getting married to an illiterate teenage daughter of a merchant, Teresa Willemy. She later learned to read a bit, but that was not her main duty or function. Her job was to birth children, and she did this well, having four in total. Ironically, the young wife who was barely able to speak proper German 
fared better than her hugely confident husband. After the wedding, Friedrich got sick and took to his bed. Helen, his grandmother, never one to take her hand or eyes away from the books, saw the path the Guti Hofnungschut was on and sold the business. Because she acted swiftly, before word could get out, Helen actually made a nice profit from the sale. But instead of learning from this, maybe even realizing that his grandmother had saved him from a disaster, Friedrich only thought of the best way to spend the 47,000 talers just acquired. So, in August of 1809, Friedrich traveled to Bremen with his latest idea. He had decided that he would not suffer like the other rural merchants, who were losing their shirts, what, between Napoleon's layers of custom posts collecting much-needed funds for his battles, and the British putting up an effective blockade of the continent with their powerful navy. No, Friedrich had somehow talked his grandmother into giving him 12,500 talers for his unusual project, to smuggle contraband into the continent from the Dutch colonies, then from Amsterdam to Essen. But Friedrich was completely out of his league. Before his adventure could begin in earnest, he was bamboozled by his agents. They took his money and then claimed that the French had captured them and taken all of the money. Again, Friedrich learned nothing from this, except, perhaps, to think even bigger, and he was about to get his chance. On March 9, 1810, Helen died in her 79th year. Her will was set. Of course, there were other grandchildren, and she had to have an idea of what Friedrich was like. But custom dictated that as the eldest son of her eldest son, he would inherit. And inherit he did. The Flachmach store, or family retail store, 200 years of acquired deeds and mortgages, and 200,000 talers, more than a million dollars in today's money. Naturally, Friedrich dreamed, and then he acted. The first to suffer was the money-making retail store. Now, it was to be a wholesale enterprise. Many believed this change was because he had not given up on his dream of smuggling and decided to use his new enterprise as a cover. More importantly, with Helen removed, this was his chance to be the greatest of all Krupps, not only for the last 230 years, but for far into the future. But not for smuggling, that was just an adventure. Friedrich had set himself the task of discovering the secret of cast steel. As Napoleon remade the world of Europe, everyone was looking for any military advantage to be had. And surely, the greatest one of all was to have cannon, cannon shot, and other arms made from cast steel, the strongest substance to date. It was the nuclear fission of its day. Steel, or low-carbon iron, was not a natural material, and also was little understood, as was its chemistry in general. Some had managed to make small amounts of cast steel, but that had been luck. They would experiment with manipulating ore and carbon with rods, and control the flow of air through bellows. Sometimes they got it right, but mostly not. 
They would guess by its appearance or how it handled during the process. But now, war was on everyone's mind. Well, those that mattered, or who wanted to matter. But besides that, Europe was on the edge of the machine age. This created a need for the high-quality steel, and lots of it. Yet, the secret had been discovered, or rather, rediscovered, and that had happened over 70 years before. The problem for Krupp and Napoleon was that the discoverer was an Englishman. Sheffield clockmaker Benjamin Huntsman had figured out the need to exclude air by heating the metal in small closed earthenware cupolas, and as he called the cupolas crucibles, the material became known as crucible steel. But in Prussia, it was referred to as cast steel. As can be imagined, the secret was closely guarded by Huntsman and his descendants. So, any and all who wanted high-quality watch springs, machine parts, or cutlery had to get it from Sheffield. But the Royal Navy's blockade of Europe, in its battle with Europe's French master, put all that to an end. Sheffield might have suffered, but not nearly as much as Europe, and specifically Napoleon. So, in response, the French emperor offered a reward of 4,000 francs for whoever could reproduce the English steel. This finder's fee, besides the accomplishment, was what motivated Friedrich. So, on September 20th, 1811, Friedrich started the Gustave Fabrique, or cast steelworks, announcing his ability to make cast steel and all products from it. Two very impressive lies. But in reality, the works was really only a small shack behind his wholesale building. There was barely enough room to turn around in it, much less solve this complex problem that needed organization and patience. Two things Friedrich clearly lacked. To prove the point, it would seem clear to most that his dream and his day job had to be balanced out. Work at the wholesale business during the day to pay the bills, and the cast steel work at night to make his dreams come true. But that wasn't how Friedrich operated. He found excuse after excuse to leave his day job and focus on his dream. Naturally, the Flakmacht began to founder. But progress was made, or at least appeared to be. Two retired Prussian army officers from Wiesbaden agreed to come in with Friedrich. They had stumbled upon the use of cupolas and shared this information. But then the officers disappeared, whether from having successfully swindled the young patron, as had his earlier agents, or having built the cupolas as was agreed. But then Friedrich's mistakes either damaged them or he failed to use them correctly. But before their disappearance, the Prussian officers pointed out that his shack was completely inappropriate for his needs. So, spending, or to his point of view, investing more of his inheritance, he had a mill built near an Essen stream. The all-important water wheel of the mill was connected to a hammer with a 450-pound thrust. Money was going out but none was coming in, and his wife, Teresa, was unable to help, as she had just had their second child, 
a boy on April 26, 1812. His name would be Alfred. And as making bad decisions seemed Friedrich's only true talent, he decided to completely throw in his hat with Napoleon, as the Grand Army was swallowed up by the vastness of Russia. Up went the tricolor, swaying above Crump's business, and other French affectations were adopted. Fortunately for Friedrich, times being what they were, he was forgiven his decision to become a Francophile, as the remnants of the Grand Army retraced its steps back to France. But with Napoleon now in check, the English from Sheffield were able to sell their cast steel on the continent again. Orders were flying across the channel. At this, the writing was on the wall, but Friedrich couldn't or wouldn't read it. He either had the ability to match the English, or he didn't. And he didn't. Still, he continued to invest in his new cast steelworks, taking on more men as his current employees enjoyed benefits unheard of for the times. But the extended family, mostly his wife's relatives, became nervous. What should have been the makings of a financial empire was quickly becoming a fiscal bloodletting. And the worse the accounting books got, the bolder the family became. A man's home was his castle, but business was business. So, six months after Napoleon abdicated from Fontainebleau, the family staged an intervention. The facts were put before Friedrich, and he sullenly gave way to the senior and more sensible members of his extended family. The water wheel came to a halt, and the Gustav Fabrique was shut down. But Friedrich, apparently like Napoleon, could not be kept down. As the emperor came back to the continent, so too did Krupp's dreams of Castile and the prize money. So, more deeds to property were sold, and plans for an even larger mill were made up. Loans were also acquired, based on other holdings. But, before too long, the Corsican was gone again, this time to Elba. And in Essen, the family stepped in again, and again the construction was halted, and the original mill was closed for a second time. If Friedrich wanted to work on his dream, it would have to be on his own. So, he worked at it, at night, on his own. Through trial and error, it wasn't until 1816 that Friedrich was making steel from his forge, but not cast steel. No, his work was no better than those around him, but he had the Krupp name, which carried some weight locally, so he started taking in orders. Of note, he sold bayonets to Berlin, but again, the mighty arms manufacturer was still a long ways off. Now that some money was coming in, though certainly not enough to be hopeful for the future, it seemed prudent to the extended family that now was the time for cutting costs and focusing on sales, to get the family's assets on a more firm footing. But this is Friedrich Krupp we are talking about. Instead, he planned on an even bigger factory, a new Schmelz house, even though he still hadn't figured out the secret of cast steel. This latest factory would have an 800-pound hammer. Fortune favors the bold, right? The site he chose was a 10-minute walk from Essen, 
along the Barren River. It was to be the center of his dream, and in reality, it became the center of the concern of Freed Krupp of Essen, which is what read on a sign above the main factory door. But that was the future. Taking out loans and selling more deeds to surrounding property, Friedrich was literally betting his last dollar on reversing the course of his family's fortune. The factory went up, and it was finished in August of 1819. It had the capacity to produce daily 100 pounds of forged steel. But there was just one problem. The Barren River was unreliable. For the first year after the factory's completion, the river fell and the water wheel didn't budge. To even get this far, the last of his inheritance was leaving his pocket. So he sought help from a government, any government. But Russia and Berlin turned him down. Things only got worse when his wife's family finally turned on him. In April 1824, the Flak House the wholesale building was taken over by his father-in-law. Friedrich had borrowed just over 18,000 talers from Teresa's father, using the property as collateral. But as he couldn't pay back the loan, the father-in-law went to court and was awarded the building. Again, family is family, but business is business. Friedrich now found himself moving his family into a small cottage next to the Gustav Fabrik. The hardest and most ironic time was when Friedrich and Teresa tried to keep the family warm around the only source of heat, a cast iron stove. Shivering around it were their children, Ida, 15, Alfred, 12, Hermann, 10, and Fritz, 4. In his last bad business decision, Friedrich kept the Schmelz house open, hoping his workers or agents could sell and produce enough items to bring in money. And in the back of his desperate mind, he also hoped someone in the factory would discover the cast steel secret. More and more Krupp property was sold to maintain a semblance of success. But soon, enough Krupp property had been sold away so that Krupp had to resign his city clerk position, a position which had been in the family for almost 200 years. By the autumn of 1824, Friedrich, broken in every way a dreamer and supposed breadwinner can be, took to his straw bed. He would never leave it. He was ruined, knew it, and had given up. He never even bothered to put on his shoes again. The water wheel filled with bird nests, and his men took their pay and loafed around as no orders came in. Friedrich laid in bed, barely moving or speaking to anyone, for two years. And finally, on October 8, 1826, his form went still. He was only 39 years old. As the factory men finally had something to do, carrying the coffin to the family's gravesite, everyone assumed that this was the end of a dynasty. But fate or chance or fortune, wasn't finished with the Krupps yet. The oldest boy, Alfred, although only 14 on the day his father died, burned with humiliation. He would not be like his father, who wasted away on a bed. He would do something. He would make something of himself, his family, his name, 
and the cobwebbed Schmelthaus. He was enough like his father to dream of success. But from somewhere else, maybe his great-grandmother, there was a practical side. And encapsulating all of this was a drive, fueled by the humiliation of what his father had done to the Krupp name. And Alfred would succeed where his father failed.